Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. Swagger, the Apple TV series inspired by basketball player Kevin Durant's youth, is returning to Richmond to shoot its second season. There are links to the extras casting and the speaking part casting on the page for this podcast at tvjerry.com. If you want some good advice on working in movies, check out my previous podcast with local casting director Ann Chapman. Each cast member has their own hair, makeup, and wardrobe persons. So then 23 dressers on top of that. And then we have two people that handle all of the background actors. And then there's usually like another two or three people that come in as floaters because there's always cameo guest walk-ons or sometimes the musical guest is in a sketch. I guess probably all said and done, there's probably about 35 or 40 of us on a Saturday total. That's Chris Leary talking about the size of the costume crew on Saturday Night Live. When the show returns in the fall, Chris will return as a dresser. Meanwhile, he's back working on Broadway for Hamilton. In this second half of our two-part interview, we go deeper into the fun at Saturday Night Live, working on West Side Story, his drag life, and more. Sifter Review of the Week The Princess on Hulu Even though this movie is set in a fairy tale kingdom, the action is full-bore 21st century with dozens of cracked bones and quick kills, albeit with swords, knives, and fists. Joey King stars as a princess betrothed to a man who's out to steal the throne from her father. She spends the entire movie fighting her way to a happy ending. Director Levon Kiet has created the almost continuous against-all-odds action scenes with clever choreography and smart staging. Some of the effects aren't convincing, but that doesn't affect the fights. Even with its medieval trappings and silly premise, this movie takes a modern approach to action and succeeds with lots of kick-ass fun. I gave it four out of five stars. Chris, what exactly is the job of a dresser on Saturday Night Live? When you're dressing an actor on SNL, you're really kind of their first line of defense the whole day. You know, you're with them from the very beginning of the day to the very end. You're really just there to kind of take care of them as well as make sure they have everything they need to literally produce a live television show like in a day. And how did your relationship with Bo and Yang develop? With him specifically, I just feel like that first year was such a challenging year, culminating in COVID. You know, my right, first, right. neither one of us really knew what to expect. So we were kind of figuring that whole process out together, which was great. And I think because of that, he and I just have a really special bond. And from there, I also dress Cecily Strong on the show and Maya Rudolph. Footnote. If you're not a regular viewer of Saturday Night Live, you can look up those three members online. Bo and Yang, who joined the cast in 2019, Cecily Strong, who's been in the cast since 2012, and Maya Rudolph, who was on the show from 2000 to 2007. I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate to really just have kind of the easiest, coolest people to work with. <laughs> great, great, great. Well, then who are the assholes? Well, me, I'm the asshole. And I, was, <laughs> I, say, I was great to work with. <laughs> so you're actually there backstage with him during the show. So you pretty much work the whole day and you're there during the run, obviously. I'm sort of one of the, like the second kind of assistant supervisors. I'm, I'm kind of, I just say that I'm the bitch of NBC because it's pretty much a running theme is that I'll just do whatever they ask me to do. So my day starts on Thursday mornings around 9am. We come in, they've done read through the night before and picked all the sketches and so then we have a full day of stitching and fittings on Thursday because all of our film shoots go out on Friday morning. 
So we're preparing for all the films we're making costumes. Sometimes it's very incredibly involved. Sometimes it's, hey, can you guys make us three life-size gummy bears in 10 hours? Oh, great. And then Friday is when the actual days start for the live show on Saturday. But we're also doing costume fittings. We have promos with the host. We have videotape inserts, voice recordings, photos we have to do. I mean, it's any number of things. Sometimes the host and sometimes the cast members are going downstairs to do Fallon or going across the hall to do late night. And I'm usually with those people for those things to make sure they have what they need. And then Saturday mornings start around eight o'clock in the morning for us. We come in and we wrap all the stuff from the film shoot. And then we start the day for Saturday. We have tons to do. And then the rehearsal starts at around 1230 in the afternoon. They run through all of the sketches, do all the technical stuff that we can figure out if there's going to be like blood or fire or explosions or whatever. We have to figure out what that means for the clothing. And, right, right. You know, oh, okay, we're, we're drenching this white tuxedo in blood. Maybe we should have a second one. Yeah, right. And so then the dress rehearsal starts at eight o'clock and we do the dress rehearsal, which we treat just like a live performance because sometimes those clips are the ones that actually make it online. It's usually just about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour longer because it's all of the sketches that we're gonna do. And then from there, they have a meeting where they decide what's gonna actually make it to air. So the stuff that gets cut gets packed away and then we put it all back together. And at 1130, we do the show as live as live can be. Right, right. <laughs> what is one of the pieces that you got to semi-design or build that people might remember or that you're most proud of? Or that was one of the biggest challenges. Three things come to mind really quick. The, the one that I was most proud of this past season was for Cecily. It, it was a quick beat. I don't even know if anyone would remember it, but it was a princess and the frog sketch to this giant pink ball gown that just, when you start to look at most of Disney's animation the clothing sort of defies the laws of the physics right right like you don't really think about it until you go to build it and you're like oh wait these sleeves are attached to her skin cool and so that took that took almost two days we luckily knew that that sketch was going in early and so it was draping this giant giant ball gown with like 25 yards of double face duchess silk satin which is a very heavy satin material with like 75 box pleats around the, the skirt and giant sleeves and a stand-up collar and a huge bow and all this stuff. And so that was really cool because it was something that I did completely start to finish just on my own that was like, this is hard and this took a long time and now it it's on her and it fits and it's like, great, okay, we did it. Probably one of the most, the more famous ones is uh, Bo and Yang's iceberg costume. Sure, of course, yeah. The brilliant Kate Russick, who was one of our fabricators in the shop, she was responsible for the very gorgeous iceberg headpiece but the rest of the suit was uh kind of like the brainchild of myself one of the other tailors and the designer who kind of pulled all of that together and you know put the rhinestones on the lapel and made the little turtleneck piece and for that particular one, we had to build this Under Armour sleeve that was attached to a pair of gloves because the whole idea was they didn't want any of his actual skin showing. So the entire thing ended up being like a leotard underneath the jacket with a giant zipper up the back. Because if I remember correctly, he was either going into it or coming out of it very quickly. So the whole thing had to be removable within seconds. Oh, great. So that was a really great one. And probably the most famous one that was literally an all hands on deck situation was the Maya Rudolph white suit that she wore as Kamala Harris the night that Joe Biden was elected. The designer knew she was like, you know, we just this is such an iconic moment. We have to make this happen. But it was at 830 on a Saturday night. You know, nothing's open. So we ended up having to go into our stock and we ended up pulling a suit that Cecily Strong had 
had worn as Tulsi Gabbard earlier in the season and turning it from a double-breasted suit to single-breasted and completely rebuilding the whole thing. And it was, there was probably six of us working on it and everyone just grabbed a piece and was like, all right, we're going to, and I'm talking like glue and fusible interfacing, like whatever we could do to make it work because we literally had like I mean, it was it was a matter of like an hour, maybe from the time that we had the stuff in hand to when she had to be on camera. And it was it was like a photo finish of like, okay, we just finished the blouse. We got to steam it really quick. And it was I mean, the blouse was fake. It like was Velcroed up the back and it was the sleeves were hacked off inside. But that's the thing with TV and film. It's like only what they're going to see is what matters. So. So how big is the staff that's there on Saturday night working in the costume shop? So there's seven, I think seven or eight of us, maybe seven of us that work in the shop pretty full-time Thursday through Saturday. I end up sort of floating because I have a lot of other stuff that I do there as well throughout the week. I, I dress the SNL house band as well. The guys that are playing, right. uh, have, I sometimes will do the film shoots and things. And then there's there's always other stuff going on. So I've, I kind of count myself as both in the shop and not in the shop. And then each cast member has their own hair, makeup, and wardrobe person. So however big the cast was this year, I think 23. So then 23 dressers on top of that. And then we have two people that handle all of the background actors. And then there's usually like another two or three people that come in as floaters because there's always cameo guest walk-ons or sometimes the musical guest is in a sketch or you know, whatever the, the situation may be, there's always has to be somebody there to handle those people and make sure they've got everything they need. So I guess probably all said and done, there's probably about 35 or 40 of us on a Saturday total. Wow. Wow. In the bumpers, you know, between each break, you see the host in fabulous outfits on some set. Is that something y'all are involved in at all? Or is that done in a photo studio somewhere else? I don't know. It's all in the studio. Everything that happens at SNL is done within the four walls of 30 Rock, with the exception of the pre-taped shoots, which are usually done at our film studio that's up on 66. But we have a in-house photography team that's fabulous. They're just, they're honestly just geniuses. Sometimes the hosts come with their own stylists and we just have somebody on standby in case, you know, oh, like her zipper broke or whatever. But sometimes they'll come to us and they need us to dress them for those things. Then there are some exceptions, like when Maya came back to host, she's kind of part of the family. So it was sort of a mix of our stuff and her stylist. And I was tailoring things and, you know, they had somebody working on something else. So that all that stuff is kind of a mix. But for the most part, we have a hand in anything that's on the person's body from the second they walk in. So you've mentioned COVID and I've noticed during the closing part, and sometimes if you see backstage in a walkthrough or something, the backstage people are still wearing masks. So I guess that started when everybody came back in the building and that's still being practiced or was being practiced till the season ended. Yeah, we were the first TV show in New York City. And, you know, fact check me on this. I think we were the first TV production in the country that came back, at least in the majors contract world. I feel like maybe that's wrong and <laughs> you're going to get angry letters to your podcast. I doubt but it. It was August of 2020 that we started pre-production. And I mean, you want to talk about just like the scariest return to work <laughs> that you've ever had. It was you know, because we didn't, as a society, we didn't really know much about it still. And as entertainment, we definitely knew even less about how we were going to keep people safe. Uh, when they said, oh, we're going to be coming back, our everyone's first question was like, how the hell are you going to do that? You know, we have the most intimate contact with people for very long periods of time. And at the time, you know, we didn't know if SNL was going to do the show with masks on or what the format was going to be. You know, originally when they were coming back, they were talking about doing like maybe we'll do a modified version of the show that's going to be much smaller that will be 
less sketch driven. Like, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. The protocol was very intense. We were also making it up as we went along. So it was like some of the stuff we were doing now seems crazy that we were putting into place. But some of it was like what (laughs) They, they had tried to say, like, originally oh you know every time you take a piece of clothing off of somebody it has to be washed <laughs> which is like okay well that's <laughs> it's impossible we can't do that <laughs> you know little things like that or don't don't shake the clothes when you take them out of a laundry bag because it spreads covid particles which again is nonsense at the time we were doing masks and the face shields which the face shields were probably the bane of my existence for the entire time that we came back they were hot And I'm a very like sweaty person. And when I'm sometimes literally running through the studio to get somewhere, that damn face shield, it like it fogs up, it glares, you're doing quick changes in the dark. And we as dressers have something called bite lights, which are these little flashlights that you wear around your neck and you literally bite down on them. So you can use both of your hands to do a change. So that became, oh, how do we, what do we do instead? You know, some people had these, I like to call them like the Wall Street broker Bluetooth headlights, which like a, like a, those old Bluetooth headsets, but it's a flashlight that you can tap. Some people would wear headlamps. Uh, Some people had old school flashlights that they would just dangle from their necks, whatever it was that you could see. But once you're working in the dark and then you put a light on it, that face shield is just like, you basically become blinded. So there were all kinds of protocols with hair and makeup specifically. Each actor had to have their own set of like combs and brushes and everyone had to be spaced out. And then there were rules about if you're dressing one actor, you can't dress another actor at all throughout the day. So then our staff had to increase because we couldn't do two people at the same time. And then of course we had to have the testing waiting period. So finding people to come work for us was no longer Friday night. Hey, we have an extra person coming in tomorrow. Are you available? It was okay. Well, you're actually shit out of luck because you have to get tested and then wait 72 hours before you can come to work. So that first season back was really, really challenging in so many ways because and that was pre-vaccine. Oh yes. Yep. Right. I thought so. So yeah, it really felt to, to a lot of, to myself specifically, just felt very scary of like, I'm not only back in New York city, which is like the scariest place to be, which was still at the time pretty dead. And we're doing this show that to me felt a little kind of just like a, okay, we're, we're making a make believe, you know, there are doctors out there that are trying to save lives and people are dying. And we're just putting on funny costumes and getting up and doing silly voices for an hour and a half. And it wasn't really until much later that people started telling us, you know, thank God SNL came back. It was the first like new entertainment that we had. It was topical. It was current. It was a way that we were all sort of able to escape a little bit and not to sound (laughs) cliche, but it really kind of made the whole thing worth it. It was like for the first time people were texting me being like, oh, I watched the show last night. And it just made me so happy that everyone, that things kind of feel somewhat normal again. And those first several months of shows were very difficult because at first we didn't have an audience of more than I think 50 people. And I got to tell you, when you're doing a comedy show, (laughs) right? 50 people spaced out in the audience. (laughs) Talk about the deadest room you could possibly imagine. And then they had this really great idea in theory to invite first responders to be the audience. I remember that. Did not have a great sense of humor. There is a famous picture that one of our audio texts took of somebody literally reading a medical textbook during the show. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there were times that it was just sort of like, well, this, who knows if this is funny or not, because the audience sure isn't letting us know. Oh, great. Do you have time to follow fashion? What do you wear? Or do you just wear work clothes? Oh, when I'm at work, it's pretty much work, especially on Saturdays. I have my 
I'm sort of known in the wardrobe department for always being the one wearing the Dickies jumpsuit on Saturdays. I tell him it's my uh, lesbian mechanic look. It's like <laughs> you have your ring of keys. Exactly. Of course. The <laughs> ring of keys. Yeah. It, I might as well, honestly, uh, you always rely on a lesbian to be practical and get the job done. So I try to channel that myself on Saturdays throughout the week. It really honestly is just built for comfort. You know, those days are so long. There's, Saturdays for me end up being sometimes from about eight o'clock in the morning until about two or three in the morning the next day. After the show is over, we stay to start putting dry cleaning out and then we have to go collect the house band clothes. And of course, we have to have our obligatory glass of champagne as well. Which, Well, when you do get a chance to dress up, do you do anything special? Do you make your own stuff? Do you follow a designer or are you just whatever you can find it? I like whatever I can find. I really like vintage clothing, both from like a style standpoint and also just a sustainability thing. I'm really opposed to fast fashion. I hate all of the like Zara, H&M sort of stuff. I mean... We've all done it. I used to wear it. I get it. But that kind of stuff is just like, it's not great quality. It doesn't last. And it's also made under some pretty unethical circumstances. Yep. As far as you're concerned, are you going to keep going back and forth between theater and screen work? Or do you prefer one over the other? You know, I don't really know. I'm kind of at this point, just kind of going where the wind blows me. I love my job at SNL. I have no plans of leaving that anytime soon. Uh, it is like a seasonal job because we're not, we're on hiatus right now. So we wrapped at the end of May. We won't and you're going to go work on Hamilton. So you just, cause you can't just take a vacation. Well, it's, I'm actually currently, I'm very proud of myself. I actually am literally on a vacation right now. Um, but that's, that's over on Thursday. Cause then I go back to Hamilton on Friday. I, I probably will just day play over the summer. There's a lot of, a lot of projects filming in New York city this summer and a few in Queens near where I live. So I would love to have like a less than 10 minute commute. And then I'm going to be doing a, a pretty big drag show out in California in August. Uh, two of my very dear friends are starting their own theater company out in wine country. And they are kind of doing this whole launch into the community. And we're doing a Wizard of Oz themed sort of party. And Miss Tequila Mockingbird is stepping up to the plate to be rude to people for a couple hours. And so I'll be doing that. And then I don't know, I, I haven't given up entirely on the idea of doing something in the realm of performance at some point. I you mean, have, not as tequila, just as Chris. As whoever will give me a paycheck, really. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you if you want the wig and the corset and that's how I'll get paid, great. As long as the check cashes, give me a W-2 and we're good to go. But yeah, I don't know. I really don't know how to answer that question because I, I feel like there's things about both that I really like and don't like. At the end of the day, theater is where my heart and soul is. That to me is is the purest form of entertainment. It's the most exciting thing on the planet. So that's really where my heart is. It's just, it's a very hard industry to work in. Broadway's, it takes pretty much all of your time away from you. Um, and there's definitely times when you resent missing the family holidays and the birthdays and things. And so film and television, while the schedules are a little more grueling, you know, you're you're not a stranger to 20 hour days but you have a lot of more days off in between. The working circumstances are usually a little harder. Like on West Side Story, we were outside during the historic heat wave in 2019. Great. You know, for 18, 20 hours a day with dancers dancing on pavement. They weren't sound stages. It was really the streets. Right. How long has Tequila been around and how often does she appear? She was born in 2010 in Richmond, Virginia. There was a, used to be a bar there called Nations. I don't know if you remember. Right. I do. It's now a, a rock club, Broadbury. Oh, great. I'm glad to see that they're using the old digs for. 
we're good. The straights need a place to hang out too. Exactly. And so they were doing a uh, drag, an amateur drag competition. It was like a five week drag competition. And I just had always kind of said, I was like, I loved going to drag shows. And I had this, this character that I invented. Her name was Tammy Fisher. She was a 47 year old Southern Baptist woman who wore a denim jumpsuit and a Hannah Montana headset. And she used to give tours of the city. And, you know, she was a very conservative woman and you know, not anyone you'd ever run into in Virginia, of course. It was not Heavens anybody no. I knew. I said to myself, you know, I have this like funny character. I know how to make my own clothes. I've been dancing since I was a kid. I sing, I perform. Like, why am I not doing this? And so I performed the first time, which of course was a total tragic disaster. It was uh, Gloria Estefan's Turn the Beat Around and truly just one of the ugliest women you've ever seen in your life in a dress. And I, I say that without exaggeration. From there, it just kind of became this thing that I was like, oh, wait, I love this. And I realized when I'm mean to somebody in real life, I'm considered like a quote unquote bully. But if you give me a wig and a microphone, now you you pay me money for that? Like, okay. <laughs> um, and so from that, I kind of sort of realized that my niche in drag was really just outrageous costumes that are totally campy and sort of this insult comedy based brand of humor it's always like a love letter to the community written with a poison pen. But I did that for a long time in Richmond. I had my own show there. And then I moved to New York City and I started doing tequila shows there. I had a weekly bingo show that I would do that was so much fun until the bar burned down. I promise I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> of course you didn't. Uh, my insurance check is still being cashed. But after that, I kind of went on like a little bit of a hiatus and just would come out for special occasions. And then I was sort of in the process actually of writing a full hour long cabaret style show to make my grand return to the stage in February of 2020. And let's just say that did not work out. I don't know what was going on then, really. I, think I don't really remember. There was like bad weather that day. I don't know. That brings up my last question. I always ask everybody when you have a little time now that you're on vacation, what are you watching? On TV or on, in movies? Yeah, movies, TV, anything to take your mind off of life. Oh my God. Um, escaping from life is one of my favorite hobbies. <laughs> I love, so horror is my favorite genre of anything all time. If there's ever like a horror TV show or a movie, I guarantee I've seen it. I love it. I just finished the second season of Flight Attendant on HBO Max, which I was obsessed with. I also finished Hacks which I think is one of the smartest TV shows on the networks right now. I haven't started the second season of The Flight Attendant yet. I like some of it, but I really didn't like her character. But in The Hacks, I just finished the second season of that, and that was great as the first season was. I mean, give Jean Smart. and She could do a McDonald's commercial, and I'd be like, oh, I guess I'm eating McDonald's now. But Flight Attendant, she has a real character redemption in the second season. I, I think that the writers of that show were very smart with, they kind of pushed her character right to the very edge of the first season of like, wow, this girl sucks. Like, I Absolutely. Did, which is sort of the whole premise of her hitting her rock bottom in the realm of her addiction, which really sets you up for the second season where she becomes like a real sort of hero and like a, a good person. So I think the second season is well worth a watch. It's very exciting. I love reality TV. I love When I was going to say that what made me think of it is I watched it last night, the first episode of the new RuPaul's All-Star, All-Star Winners or whatever it's called. Now that is a good season. Those girls are really giving you something. There's not anyone on the show that I don't like. And I love the new concept of no one's going home. It really just, right. it makes, and it's, it's so, it's such interesting, good TV to watch because they're all 
at the top of their careers and they're all in their own little paths. Like there's not anyone on that show that's kind of competing for the same lane, but it's just good TV to watch because they're just so good, you know? Yeah, it, it, every night they come out and you're just astounded by the creativity and the craftsmanship. And do you know anything about that? Do you know how much, I mean, they must be given budgets. They must be given people or something, or subjects. They have to know the subjects ahead of time because they don't, it's not a building competition. And again, for the all-star season, the word on the street is that they just wanted some really good TV. So I think the rules were a little different from them. They were given sort of some extra information ahead of time to really set them up for just like a good season of the show, which is very evident. In a normal season, if there are, let's say like, let's say there's 13 actual challenges, the girls are given like 20 possible challenges and says, here's what could be on the show. So prepare for all of this. Wow. They have like wardrobe people that work on the show that help them get dressed. And there are some of the things like for some of the musical productions, it's, it would just be impossible for these girls to have bought with them this. Oh, oh we all have matching like hot pink. Sure. Right. Our bodies. There's not a budget. They're not given. The only thing that they used to be given was a five suitcase limit, I think, on the stuff they could bring. But now I think it's just like whatever you need to bring to make it happen. Spending twenty and $30,000 a season on their clothing and hair and all that stuff, which, you know, the show has at this point become such a commodity that it's almost like you have to because then afterwards you're going to be paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw the country in the same clothes and do your catchphrase for a bunch of gays at the at the bar. <laughs> sure, sure. The only thing I hate is they're calling it the legendary legend star. That just is a little... Why did they cut out one of those legends? The, the name of the show is awful. And also, let's, let's just call it what it is. The Platinum Plunger is gold. It is not platinum. <laughs> I know. It definitely was not platinum. It was glitter is what it was. Right. I know some queen had a coupon to Michael's and was like, oh, we're just going to go dip this in whatever's on clearance. Like, your RuPaul's Black right. Race, if you're going to call it platinum, like, get, make it the right color, please. Well, Chris, this has been delightful fun. I've had a great time. Thank you so much. Enjoy the Tonys. Yes, I will. I hope you'll be tuning in as well. I will. To put that last remark in the RuPaul reference in perspective, this episode was recorded two nights after RuPaul's new season dropped and the day of the Tony Awards broadcast. Pictures of Chris in drag and the three costumes he discussed are on the webpage at tvjerry.com. Coming soon in theaters. The only movie opening this weekend is Thor Love and Thunder. Chris Hemsworth returns in the title role with Natalie Portman also coming back. TV and streaming. On the 6th, Hello, Goodbye, and Everything in Between on Netflix. A young couple decides to break up before college, but a final date may change things. Maggie on Hulu. A woman tries to cope with her abilities as a psychic. On the 7th, Moonhaven on AMC+. A hundred years into the future, a cargo pilot finds herself on a utopian community on the moon. On the 8th, the Sea Beast on Netflix, an animated film from the director of Manoa and Big Hero 6. On Amazon, Blackbird. Taryn Edgerton plays an imprisoned drug dealer who must befriend a serial killer to get a confession. Trigger Point on Peacock, a police drama imported from the UK about bomb specialists. On the 11th on AMC, the final season of Better Call Saul. On the 12th, on FX and Hulu, the next season of the vampire comedy, What We Do in the Shadows. How to Change Your Mind on Netflix. Michael Pollan explores the use of psychedelics for therapy. On the 14th on Netflix, Resident Evil, the latest entry in the horror franchise. 
On the 15th, the rehearsal on HBO. Nathan Fiedler, who created Nathan For You, has another series about living with life's uncertainties. The Gray Man. Netflix drops their most expensive movie ever, with Ryan Gosling starring as a CIA contractor on the run from Chris Evans. Persuasion on Netflix. This adaptation of the Jane Austen novel stars Dakota Johnson. Don't Make Me Go on Amazon Prime. John Cho stars as a terminally ill father who tries to spend more time with his teenage daughter. For more sister, including literally thousands, thousands of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.